Well, good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's. Whether you're joining us online or in person, whether you're curious, critical, or committed, we're glad that you're here. When you're discouraged, what do you do? Do you reach for the rosé or go on a, uh, do you punch a wall? Do you go on a long walk or do you uh, go on a short shopping spree? St. Paul, a famous early Christian writer, didn't prescribe any of those things to the earliest Christians when they were discouraged. No wine or workouts for them. No. His response? The end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. I will admit it's not exactly what I'd share with one of our daughters if they had done badly on an exam or how I might counsel one of you if you were passed over for a promotion or we're experiencing a breakup. But we're in the last few weeks of our E100 preaching series, looking at the essential 100 passages from the Bible as we figure out what God is doing in our lives today. We've recently been reading about how the earliest Jesus movement, the church, rapidly grew after the resurrection of Jesus. And our reading from 1 Thessalonians that Samantha just read for us is generally agreed by historians to be the earliest Christian piece of writing that we have, written by Paul about 15 years after Jesus' resurrection to a small gathering of Jesus' followers who lived in Thessalonica, a Greek port city, think uh, Miami. And they were struggling because members of their community had begun to die, and they were now unsure about their future plans. Don't worry, says Paul. The end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. This morning, we're going to look at uh, Paul's advice to those earliest Christians and see what it might mean for us 2,000 years later, but still with our own personal discouragements and the reality of climate change and now nuclear war again. Whether we've been learning how to follow Jesus for several years or you are new and spiritually searching. Now, right off the bat, you might be nervous about having shown up for a sermon focusing on the end of the world. Isn't that what fundamentalist Christians focus on? Y2K being the end of the world, the rapture happening when you're at the LCBO and being left behind, right? I know you worry about this. And while there certainly has been irresponsible teaching around this topic, and you may have grown up with some of it, There are 318 references to Jesus' second coming at the end of time in the New Testament. And roughly one out of every 13 verses mentions it, and nearly every ethical command of Jesus is linked to it. So the doctrine of the second coming is not some embarrassing, uneducated second cousin at the Christian party. There's a reason this passage from Thessalonians is included in the E100. So what's going on? You might want to uh, keep the passage on your phone open. Uh, It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, or the Pew Bible in front of you. It's at the back, page 204, 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, before Jesus died, he had told his closest followers that he would be returning one day, the second coming, with the first coming being Christmas. And taking Jesus at his word, uh, those earliest Christians didn't make any long-range plans. And as the years went on and those first followers began to die, the only reason that we have the historical record of the New Testament at all 
is because finally someone worked up the nerve to say, you know what? The eyewitnesses are dying off. We really should get all these accounts of Jesus' life down on paper. Jesus' mother Mary was almost certainly dead by now, and the Roman emperor Titus was going to destroy Jerusalem in about a decade. All to say, Paul was writing to people who desperately wanted to know whether Jesus' delayed return was in the fine print of the strategic plan or whether he was simply missing in action. And how does Paul respond? The end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. Now, his encouragement consists mainly of two things. One, first, because Jesus was raised from the dead, we don't need to grieve death the way other people do. Chapter 4, 13 to 14. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so you don't grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, Greco-Roman culture at the time, while varied in its beliefs on the afterlife, not only did they balk at the idea of a bodily resurrection, like a physical one, but they also lacked hope for any kind of meaningful reunion once a friend or a family member had died. And if this life is all there is, then death produces considerable grief. But not so for members of the Jesus movement, says Paul. This doesn't mean we don't grieve. Jesus himself wept publicly when his friend Lazarus died. But let's be clear, we're grieving for ourselves. I had a little brother named Peter. He died when he was one. And I remember on the day of his funeral, my father saying to me, Jenny Wren, that was his nickname for me, Jenny Wren, today we don't grieve for Peter. He's in paradise. We grieve for ourselves. If we believe that Jesus died and God raised him from the dead, and I realize the jury is out on that for some of you who are spiritually searching, but the Thessalonian uh, Christians were convinced. Some of them may have actually seen the risen Jesus. But if you do believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then you can also believe that your loved ones who've hitched their wagon to the resurrection of Jesus will be caught up into God's resurrection life. Easter Sunday is not a one-time event, says Paul. It's a foretaste. It's, it's a down payment on a future reality that we can fantastically look forward to. So grieve, but don't grieve without hope. Second, Jesus is coming back, but when? It's going to be a surprise. Chapter 5, verse 2. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul here is writing to Christians who may have actually known Jesus in his earthly life, and they would well remember Jesus saying that no one will know when he's going to return. He will return like a thief in the night. Don't forget, Paul says, God doesn't use the same calendar that we do with all the same alerts and alarms. 
Do you really think a thief is going to text you to see when might be a good time to break in? Does Monday work? Jesus will not come back on a published schedule. He will come like a thief in the night, padding silently around in the dark. And if you've actually ever experienced this or, you know, had your wallet stolen at a club, then you know what a troubling image this can be. The question is, what does this thief, what does this thief want to take? Briefly, two things that this thief, Jesus, wants to take away from us so we can receive something else. One, the bitterness of unforgiveness and judgment. You see, holding on to the return of Jesus at the end of time, it can give us a power to forgive. When someone wrongs us, we want them to be punished, for justice to be done. And we're really quick, myself included, to jump into that judgment seat and encourage God to mete out justice the way we think appropriate. The problem is, we're not big enough for that seat. It's like the ring from, like, you know, the Lord of the Rings. That ring, judgment, it twists us. It makes us think the worst of others. And it helps us paint large groups of people with negative stereotypes. American writer J.D. Greer puts it like this. Apart from the doctrine of the second coming, we have no power to keep ourselves from running to that judgment seat. Only by knowing that Jesus is coming back and that his return means true justice can I be content to stay off it. I can endure injustice for the time being because he will set things right. This does not mean we become doormats. And it doesn't mean we don't fight against oppression, against prejudice. But it does mean that the pains of daily life, they don't have to consume us. Secondly, this thief, this thief Jesus, he wants to take away despair in times of suffering and give us hope in its place. We're told in this passage that Jesus will return in clouds and that believers will be caught up with him. It's actually a really significant detail because it points us back to the Old Testament when God led the Israelites out of Egypt in a cloud and then gave the law to Moses in a cloud. This glory cloud, glory, the Shekinah of God, is always a sign of God being with God's people, of the beginning of the end of the pain and suffering that does marks daily life. Let's not pretend it doesn't. The return of Jesus in clouds is good news for people whose lives have some bad news in it. If you've got cancer, if you're single and you don't want to be, if your job actually drains life from you, then Jesus is saying, the end of the world is coming. Be encouraged. The good old days, they're always ahead of us. Holy Communion, what the children and youth are about to join us for, our family meal, Holy Communion, is a tangible, earthly reminder of the heavenly banquet 
that the risen Jesus is setting the table for at the end of time. Take and eat. Because the end of the world is coming. And we've been invited to one hell of a party. Thanks be to God. Amen.